In the year 1873, a fancy new type of fencing known as barbed wire went on exhibit at an Illinois fair. A guy named Levi Strauss got a special patent on some work pans he had been developing. Both the Heineken and Coors Brewing Companies went into business. Jesse James robbed his first train and the New York stock market collapsed, triggering a financial crisis known as the Long Depression. Ulysses S. Grant was president and the population of the United States was right at about 39 million souls, one of which was a black man you've probably never heard of named Luther James Dorsey. And it was on a Friday, November 14th of that very same year that Luther up and joined the army. Mr. Dorsey was born in Washington, D.C. sometime around the year 1850. And seeing as how slavery not only wasn't abolished in the district until 1862, but the nation's capital also served as a major slave trading depot, there's a very good chance that Luther was born a slave. And former slaves didn't have a whole hell of a lot of opportunities in 1873. For a guy like Luther, joining up with the army was likely his way out. An opportunity that would see the former slave eventually become a sergeant of Company E, 10th U.S. Cavalry. And it was in that capacity that he found himself just nine months after his enlistment in a life-or-death struggle with hundreds of Comanche and Kiowa warriors as he and his fellow troopers fought to protect the Wichita Agency in Indian Territory, a bloody battle that would cost the lives of four of his brothers-in-arms. Sergeant Dorsey would then go on to serve down in South Texas on the border chasing down renegade Lipan Apache and Kickapoos and cattle rustlers and murderers, a tough job that would sometimes see he and the men of Company E crossing the river into Mexico some of the roughest and most desolate land many of these horse soldiers had ever seen. Finally, after five years in the saddle and God knows how many close calls and shooting scrapes, Sergeant Dorsey hung up his spurs and mustered out, headed east and settled in the little town of Conroe, Texas, just north of Houston, where he would spend the rest of his life. A life that, as far as I can tell, was pretty normal. He got married, bought him a house, had some kids, worked various jobs like farm laborer, home builder, trash hauler, and carpenter. And then, on the 17th of September, 1939, at damn near 90 years of age, Sergeant Luther James Dorsey, formerly of Company E, 10th Cavalry, U.S. Army, passed away. I don't know what kind of man Sergeant Dorsey was. I don't know if he was a good husband or how well he treated his kids. Matter of fact, I'm only aware of his existence because he's buried in a little overgrown cemetery in a bad part of town, not too far away from where I'm currently recording. But I think Sergeant Dorsey's life is a good example of your typical Buffalo soldier. Those actions he took part in that I just mentioned were of the same type that the men of the 9th and 10th Cavalries often found themselves engaged in there on the Western Frontier. I also bring up Luther Dorsey in particular because he's one of those forgotten men of the West. There's no Wikipedia page for this guy. There's no movies or books bearing his name. But our graveyards are full of men just like him. Men whose headstones we walk or drive past every day without giving it a second thought, without knowing their story. Luther James Dorsey is one of the many tough men who sat in the saddle and helped, for better or for worse, tame what we call the Wild West. From slave to sergeant, he tasted the dust in his mouth, felt the blistering sun beating down on his back. He smelt the smoke. He heard the war cries. He saw the arrows and the lances and the blood. And most of all, he honorably served in this nation's military as one of the proud fraternity of men we now refer to as Buffalo Soldiers. And for that, I not only thank Sergeant Dorsey for his service, but I also dedicate this episode to him. They say you don't truly die until nobody remembers you. Well, I remember you, Sergeant Dorsey. And hopefully everyone who hears this will continue to remember your name. So saddle up, grab your spurs, because we ride in dirty on this newest Fighting From Arrival, Fighting For Survival episode of Bloody Beaver Podcast. Yeah! 
directly following the end of the Civil War, the U.S. military underwent a massive reorganization and reduction in force. A lot of people were leaving the service, some units and regiments were dissolved, and others were being formed. And for the first time ever, Congress decided to allow African Americans to join the regular army. This saw the initial formation of six brand new all-black regiments, but eventually they were pared down to just four. The 24th and the 25th Infantries and the 9th and the 10th Cavalries. Now, this was not the first time that blacks had served in the U.S. military. A lot of the men who made up these new all-black regiments were veterans themselves of the war between the states. All total, over 180,000 blacks fought in the Civil War, resulting in 38,000, or roughly one out of every five, paying the ultimate sacrifice. And inspiring one of the greatest Civil War movies ever, Glory, where Morgan Freeman slapped the dog shit out of Denzel Washington. <sighs> Gotta watch that movie again. Anyway, even going back to the founding of this country, an estimated 9,000 African Americans served in the Continental Army during the Revolutionary War. And in the War of 1812, black soldiers took part in the action as well, during conflicts such as the Battle of Lake Erie and the Battle of New Orleans. So yeah, black men serving the armed forces wasn't necessarily a new thing in 1866. What was special about these new units was that the United States was not engaged in war when they were formed. In the past, the military sort of used black troops temporarily oftentimes as support personnel or, or just labor. And when the fighting was over, they were let go. These newly formed units not only weren't temporary, but they were the first time that blacks were allowed to join the regular army in a time of peace. And I say a time of peace because the United States was not formally at war with anybody like England or the Confederate States or whoever. There was, however, plenty of fighting to be found out west where the so-called Indian Wars were really ramping up. This is where these newly formed regiments were headed, and they'd soon be facing off against some of the greatest guerrilla warfighters this world has ever known. Tribes like the Comanche and the Cheyenne and the Kiowa and Apache. And it was these Native Americans who'd soon dub these black troopers the Buffalo Soldiers. And just for the sake of simplicity, I will focus more on the cavalry on this episode. And just real quick, on the off chance there's someone listening that doesn't know the difference between the cavalry and the infantry, basically the infantry are foot soldiers. They walk everywhere. Whereas the cavalry ride into battle. Nowadays, even though the men and women serving in the U.S. Army's 1st Cavalry Division still proudly wear the trademark Stetson hats and earn their spurs, the helicopter has replaced the horse. You know, even going back to World War II, you had your cavalry troopers who had transitioned into mechanized infantry or tankers. But in 1866, when these Buffalo soldiers headed out west to the frontier, and during the years that guys like Sergeant Dorsey served, the horse reigned supreme. And for good reason. These tribes were some of the greatest horsemen of all time. That said, the 24th and 25th Infantry Regiments did also engage with the hostiles. So just know if you hear me talking about Buffalo Soldiers or even just the 10th Cavalry, I am kind of lumping them all in together. As far as the name Buffalo Soldiers, there's a few different stories of how this handle came into being. One version goes that it was the Comanche who said that the men of the 10th fought just as hard as a cornered buffalo. Another said it was the hair of these black soldiers that reminded the Cheyenne of the black woolly hair that adorns the head of the American bison. Yet another version is that it was in reference to the heavy buffalo coats these troopers wore during the winter. Nobody knows for certain, but all sources do attribute the name to Native Americans. And I don't know if the men of the 10th Cavalry ever referred to themselves or each other as buffalo soldiers, but the name did stick. And besides, something tells me that black dudes in the 1860s were probably used to being called a whole lot worse. I had a difficult time finding out how many men all total served as Buffalo Soldiers, but I did find out that between 1866 and 1891, they made up 12% of the infantry and 20% of the U.S. Cavalry. 
In the regiment's early days, they were stationed on the Kansas frontier, doing typical Army stuff. Respond to hostile raids, protecting settlers and travelers, as well as the railroads and mail carriers. Even going after bootleggers and outlaws and helping build forts or outposts. If you listen to my last episode, then you'll know it was a company of Buffalo soldiers who came to Major Forsyth's rescue there at the Battle of Beecher Island in 1868 in present-day Colorado. A couple of weeks later, those same troopers fought hundreds of warriors at Beaver Creek, and they fought so hard that General Phil Sheridan himself wrote a field order thanking them. As time progressed, however, these troops were more concentrated in the Southwest, Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona. And they did the same things there that they were doing up in Kansas, in addition to keeping the peace on our southern border. Oftentimes without a whole hell of a lot of credit. You know, even though they were soldiers of the U.S. military, they were treated sort of like secondhand soldiers. You know, dark-skinned stepchildren. And as such, they were often placed in remote outposts. I guess the idea was out of sight, out of mind. And to be completely honest, a lot of the top brass didn't trust them. Didn't think they could fight as well as their white counterparts preconceived notions that the Buffalo soldiers proved incorrect time and time again. Notions that are quickly dispelled when you consider the 23 medals of honor awarded to men who served in these units. And not only that, but these all-black regiments had less desertion and court-martial rates than any other regiments during this era. And their officers, who at the beginning were all white, sang their praises, even at the detriment of their own reputations. One of which, Colonel Benjamin Grierson, went so far as to forbid the use of the word colored in regard to his men, be it spoken or even written down in company reports, saying, quote, These men are soldiers of the 10th United States Cavalry. Nothing more, nothing less. General Black Jack Pershing, who served as an officer of the Buffalo Soldiers on three separate occasions, had total respect for the men under his command, saying that he never saw braver troops anywhere. Even famed artist Frederick Remington, who spent time with the 10th, once commented that they were the, quote, Best damn soldiers in the world. Despite these praises, though, they were still dealing with a whole lot of prejudice and just flat-out ignorance. One of the reasons they were sent to Texas and other parts of the Southwest was because General Sherman believed, or at least this is what he told Congress, that the black soldiers could withstand the extreme heat better than the whites could. Now, I know this is a bunch of BS, because my friend, Jeremy, who just so happens to be a black gentleman, cannot take the heat worth a damn. I love that man like a brother, but if it gets over 90 degrees, he's about as worthless as tits on a boarhawk. So I don't know what the hell Sherman was talking about. By the year 1874, the men of the 9th and 10th Cavalry found themselves knee-deep in the famous Red River War, going up against the lords of the Southern Plains, the Comanche, and their allies, the Kiowa. A lot of this action, as many as 20 engagements, took place in the Texas Panhandle and finally came to an end when Comanche leader Quanta Parker surrendered. Now, I don't have the time on this episode, but if you really want to read about the type of endurance displayed by these troopers and just what they were capable of, Google the Buffalo Soldier Tragedy of 1877. Really crazy story. Once the Comanche and Kiowa were defeated, the Buffalo Soldiers set their sights on the Apache, who, under Chief Victorio, had escaped the reservation and taken to the warpath. The men of the 9th and 10th Cavalry would have many skirmishes with these renegades in the Guadalupe Mountain area of present-day far west Texas and southern New Mexico, ultimately driving Victorio deep into Old Mexico, where he was later killed. A decade later, a contingent of Buffalo soldiers took part in the Pine Ridge Campaign up in present-day South Dakota in response to the Ghost Dance Movement, a movement that made white people nervous AF. So nervous that over 5,000 troops were sent up to the Lakota Reservation, nearly one-quarter of the military's fighting strength and the largest mobilization of troops since the Civil War, just to keep a bunch of dancing Lakotas in check. You know how one black dude will get pulled over and before you know it, there are like five cop cars on the scene? Well, Dancing While Native was the original Driving While Black. 
Unfortunately, things came to a disastrous head there in South Dakota when the 7th Cavalry caught up with a band of Lakota who had escaped the reservation, resulting in the atrocity now known as the Massacre of Wounded Knee. Now, I will say I haven't seen anything that states that any Buffalo soldiers were present for this massacre or any other massacre. More on that later. Uh, The massacre at Wounded Knee, that was the 7th Cavalry. The Buffalo soldiers present in South Dakota were just part of that large force of 5,000 troops. If you're a repeat listener, you may remember the episode I did on Nate Champion and the Johnson County War. Shout out episode number 14. That was when those rich cattlemen hired killers to take out their competition. Well, eventually the army got called in to keep the peace, but was soon compromised by those same rich guys and the crooked politicians they had in their pockets. So the government had to send in the Buffalo soldiers who, despite some serious pushback, gunfights with the locals, and the loss of one of their own killed in action, were successful in finally getting the violence in check. Now, this was the early 1890s. The Buffalo Soldiers had been patrolling the frontier for over 25 years at this point, and the West, for the most part, was no longer wild. But these troopers still had plenty of work to do, and bicycles to ride. In 1896, some genius in the U.S. government got a wild hair up his ass and decided to test out bicycles and see if they were up to military standards. I guess some armies over in Europe were taken to riding bikes, so we decided to try it out as well, see if they could hold up to the rigors of military use over rough terrain. Almost 2,000 miles of rough terrain. And so it was that 20 Buffalo soldiers from the 25th Infantry departed from Fort Missoula, Montana and cycled all the way to St. Louis, Missouri. 1,900 miles. Luckily, they made this trip in the warmer months, but still, weather in Montana can be a bit unpredictable, even in the summer. Just so happens that these soldiers hit a freak July snowstorm that dumped 11 inches on them. And then they hit an ice storm that caused their hands to freeze to the handlebars. By the time they reached Nebraska, temps had already risen to a sweltering 110 degrees Fahrenheit. But still, they persevered, because that's what the Buffalo Soldiers did. That's what they'd always done. From Kansas to Texas to Wyoming. Fighting from a rival, fighting for survival. The trip was a success. You know, I don't know whether or not it was proven that bicycles were any damn good for military use, but for sure the fact that the Buffalo Soldiers were some tough sons of bitches was further solidified. And nothing ever really came of the bike thing because shortly thereafter, the Spanish-American War kicked off. And of course, the Buffalo Soldiers were there as well, storming up San Juan Hill. Black cavalrymen riding next to white cowboys and American Indian scouts. Ex-Confederates bleeding with career Yankees. And they took San Juan Hill because they were American fighting men and there's no hill that American fighting men can't take. Six Buffalo Soldiers earned the Medal of Honor, our nation's top award for bravery, during that fight. Following their actions there in Cuba, the Buffalo Soldiers helped inspire something I think we're all familiar with, Smokey the Bear, because only you can prevent forest fires. A group of Buffalo Soldiers were sent out west to serve in Yosemite and Sequoia National Parks as some of the first ever park rangers. That hat you see Smokey the Bear wearing is modeled off of their hats, even down to the distinctive crease at the top, sometimes referred to as a Montana pinch. Not to be confused with the, oh no, I'm about to shit my pants, where's the closest bathroom pinch. These men not only fought forest fires and captured illegal poachers, but they also helped build many of the roads and trails in our national parks still in use today. And Buffalo Soldier Captain Charles Young of the 9th Cavalry was the first ever African American superintendent of a national park. And yes, that was Captain Charles Young. He was an officer. Remember, when the Buffalo Soldiers were formed, there were no black officers anywhere. That changed when a guy named Henry O. Flipper graduated from West Point in 1877, the first ever African-American to do so. And there were many more to follow, men like Captain Young. By the turn of the century, some units of Buffalo soldiers consisted entirely of black men, from enlisted all the way up to the officers. 
Just men, though. No girls allowed. Sorry, ladies. We don't need y'all coming in here and gaying everything up with your soft skin and dainty little hands and sweet, sweet bosoms. Ugh. Gross. Actually, there was at least one female Buffalo soldier, believe it or not. 22-year-old Cathay or Kathy Williams changed her name to William Kathy and passed herself off as a man, enlisting with the Buffalo soldiers in 1866. Unfortunately, she would contract smallpox and end up hospitalized where her true gender was revealed and she was discharged. After the Spanish-American War was over, these Buffalo soldiers would continue to serve. And although they didn't participate in any combat in World War I, they did see action in the Philippine-American War, the 1916 Mexican Expedition, and the battles of Ambos Nagalas and Bear Valley. By the time World War II came around, the 9th and 10th Cavalries had mostly been disbanded, and by the Korean War, the military was finally fully integrated. Going forward from that moment on, the U.S. military was no longer segregated which means there would eventually be black drill sergeants yelling at terrified 18-year-old white kids to get the fuck off their bus. And I find that highly amusing. Look, we all know R. Lee Emery was the greatest drill instructor ever, at least on film. But come on, can you imagine Samuel L. Jackson as a drill instructor? Uh, one last thing I'd like to touch on when it comes to Buffalo soldiers. It's something I've seen pop up here and there while reading about them. It's the idea that they were just pawns of the white man and at very least complicit accessories to the genocidal government policies aimed at Native Americans. A group that I've said before is probably the most marginalized group in the United States even today. That it was hypocritical or problematic, I fucking hate that word, that these black soldiers, many of whom were born into slavery and subjected to systematic racism their entire lives, would then turn around and help oppress the American Indians. But things weren't quite that black and white, pun intended. Uh, I stumbled upon an article that I won't link to because, honestly, I don't want to give the site any traffic. But it condemns the Buffalo Soldiers as being part of General Sherman's racist movement against Native Americans and likens their actions, including massacres and the actions of the U.S. military as a whole, to Hitler's final solution. And the website sells a whole bunch of uh, Confederate flag shirts and beer koozies with really clever stuff like, I support LGBT, liberty, God, Bible, and Trump. So uh, yeah, if that tells you anything. And it's not so much the koozie that's offensive, but it's the total lack of an actual good sense of humor. You know, basically the type of people that think Bob Saget's jokes from America's Funniest Home Videos was like the height of all comedy. Anyway, that aside, it's an assessment I don't agree with. Uh, while I do think it's important to look at history with your eyes wide open and not to ignore certain aspects because they don't fit your narrative, I also don't think we can judge the Buffalo Soldiers so easily when it comes to their actions fighting against the Native Americans. I found another article published in 2019 in the Seattle Times that sheds more light on the issue, where a Dr. Daryl Milner, a professor emeritus at Portland State University, said of the Buffalo Soldiers, quote, they owned no property. They had recently been property themselves. They had no money. They had no educational talents or skills. They were surrounded by the same people who had been their former masters, who had very negative opinions about the new circumstances. They had no protections from the law. Although it seems sort of incongruous that a former slave population would help impose the sort of controls and circumstances on another colored population in the country in that next generation, unfortunately, sometimes serving in the military was the best option especially for a young black man. The article then goes on to say, In his book, In Search of the Racial Frontier, Dr. Quintard Taylor, Professor Emeritus of History at the University of Washington, explains that in addition to protecting white settlers, the Buffalo soldiers protected other inhabitants. They defended the Chickasaw and Cherokee and Creek farmers from Comanche or Kiowa raids, and even defended indigenous tribes from white people. 
In 1879, the 10th Cavalry protected a Kiowa village from white Texas Rangers. And in 1887, the 9th Cavalry Regiment protected Utes from Colorado militiamen. Still, Milner said, one should resist the temptation to minimize the complex role of segregated black regiments in Western history. History is not always clean. Sometimes it can be very messy and confusing, because that's the way, unfortunately, life is sometimes, he said. As an example of this, Milner cited the complicated roles that some black Americans find themselves in today. In modern American society, often black people have to make very difficult choices, Milner said. The thing that jumps to mind in present circumstances, as an example, is black men who want to become policemen in the context of all the hostility between the police community and the black community. Life is not always simple and straightforward and logical and reasonable. More likely, it's often complicated and contradictory. Okay, fair enough. I definitely like uh, what he had to say about history not always being clean and how it's often very messy and confusing. I also like how he pointed out how the Buffalo soldiers at times protected Native Americans. I'll add Sergeant Dorsey to the mix. You know, remember that fight against the Comanche? He and his men were protecting the peaceful Wichita tribe. And while the Buffalo soldiers did do plenty of rounding up of natives and their actions did result in tribes being put on reservations, I haven't seen any evidence of them taking part in any massacres. The truth is, at least the way I see it, is the fighting on the frontier was more complicated than just the army coming in and saying, hey, look, Indians, let's go kill them. I know I've said this a million times, but it really was a case that you killed one of mine, now I'm going to kill one of yours. It's a never-ending cycle of violence. A cycle that was for sure influenced by the fact that these tribes had been decimated by European diseases, were witnessing their way of life and their buffalo herds being destroyed, and were quite literally fighting for their very existence and freedom. Unfortunately, a whole lot of innocent people, women and children on both sides, paid the price during all this violence. The Buffalo soldiers did spend a lot of time protecting white settlers and travelers from war parties. They also put their own necks on the line more than once, protecting Native Americans from other tribes as well as crazy-ass white people. The tragedy of what happened to the Native Americans is a story that I cannot possibly easily sum up in just a podcast. It's something that I don't think most of us can even grasp, especially me. But I do believe that by placing the blame on the Buffalo soldiers, I don't know, it just seems like an easy target. Seems like it's convenient. And for many of these black soldiers, the army was the only way out of whatever less than desirous life they had been born into. But on a bigger, grander scale, you know, they kind of were paving the way for others to come, whether they knew it or not. Things were changing in America, slowly, but change was coming. Just the fact that they were finally allowing black people to become officers was huge. Long overdue, criminally late, but still huge. The men who served as Buffalo soldiers weren't only fighting to better their own lives, but they were fighting for the rights of their children and their grandchildren. For them to be able to be recognized and enjoy a way of life that they themselves were not yet privy to. They may have been serving and protecting a white people and a government that didn't yet consider them to be true fellow citizens, but that service was not lost on everybody. Edward A. Johnson, the first black New York state legislator, summed it up pretty good in 1917 when he declared, quote, Let it be said that the Negro soldier did his duty under the flag, whether that flag protects him or not. And they did do their duty, and then some. They proved that they, despite the circumstances of their birth and despite the color of their skin, were every bit as capable as any other man in uniform. Today, we've got black scientists, black doctors, professors, presidents, pilots, star athletes, generals, you name it. Because at some point, somewhere down the line, some brave soul decided, you know what? The system ain't perfect and it may be rigged against me, but I'm going to get it done. I'm going to step out and prove that I'm every bit as worthy and capable as anybody else. And as far as I'm concerned, that's exactly what the Buffalo Soldiers did. And I'll end this with one more quote from an African-American and World War II veteran, James Harden Doherty. He said, quote, 
We are home now, though our flame flickers low. Will you fan it with the winds of freedom, or will you smother it with the sands of humiliation? Will it be that we fought for the lesser of two evils, or is there this freedom and happiness for all men? And that's about all I've got on the Buffalo Soldiers. And I did it all without singing the Bob Marley song. You have no idea how hard that was. I know this was a short episode, but hey, Black History Month is the shortest month of the year, so you know I thought it'd be fitting. I'm kidding. Uh, I could have easily made this episode over an hour long, but I'm trying real hard to put out at least one episode every two weeks for y'all. And this was by no means meant as a definitive guide or a deep dive into the Buffalo Soldiers or the entirety of their story. If nothing else, it was just me indulging my own interest and learning about this group of soldiers I've always been curious about. If you'd like to learn more, there's plenty of info online. Check out the links on page five of buffalosoldiers.net. A lot of links on there for you to peruse. A lot of links in this episode's show notes as well, so check those out. And I'd highly suggest reading more about the first black officer, Henry O. Flipper. Very inspiring, yet sad, uh, as he was ultimately kind of screwed over by the army. There's a Buffalo Soldier Museum in Houston, Texas that I plan on visiting very soon. Check out their website as well. Lots of good stuff on there. And as far as Luther James Dorsey goes, uh, there have been efforts to restore the cemetery that he's buried in. You can check out the website cccrp.org to find out more about the Conroe Community Cemetery Restoration Project and see how you can help. Or if you just want more info on Sergeant Dorsey. I'll link to a video on YouTube where a local news station did a story on the dedication ceremony held at the Conroe Community Cemetery. And if you're ever in the Conroe area, you might want to check out the Montgomery County Veterans Memorial Park located at the intersection of I-45 and 105 West, right next to the library. The south bridge that leads to the park has been dedicated to and named in honor of Sergeant Luther James Dorsey. I'll link to a video on that as well. It's pretty cool, especially seeing that uh, some of his descendants were able to be there and witness the event. All right, y'all. Thank you all for listening. If you like what you hear, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you're listening. And please share this podcast with somebody. Spread the butter that is a Bloody Beaver podcast all over the toast of mankind. Feel free to email me with whatever's on your mind at bloodybeaverpodcast at gmail.com. Or go on over to bloodybeaver.com and hit that contact button. Or if you just want more true stories from the wild and woolly west. You can also check out my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash bloodybeaver if you want to support the podcast. I do have some content that is exclusive to Patreon. Stuff like the first ever episode of Bloody Beaver Podcast and a little series I did on the Mountain Man Kit Carson. Thanks to my patrons, we were just able to make another donation. It wasn't much. It was $35, but it's something. And we gave it to the National Black Child Development Institute. If you do support me on Patreon, you can rest assured that 20% will go to charity because it makes me feel good and I like to feel good. All right. I think that's it for this episode. I think I'm going to go watch Glory. And if uh, any of you try to recreate that 1,900 mile bicycle journey that the Buffalo Soldiers undertook, just make sure you wear a heavy ass Buffalo coat while doing so. Okay. Or I don't know. Wear whatever you want. Just don't wear those stupid looking tight little shorts. Come on. Come on.